Well, good morning. It's good to see you. I don't know if you know this or not, but usually in the first service when Jay has his robe on and the choir is up here, when he's done in between speaking, if you don't usually go to that service, he'll go up and he actually sings with the choir and he comes back and speaks and goes back and forth. So this morning, uh, as my wife was getting the girls ready to come to church, my little six-year-old, Caitlin, um, thought that I was going to have to do that. She thought I was going to have to put on a robe and get in the choir. And, and Alexandra, my eight-year-old, she said, no, Daddy would never sing in the choir. And, <laughs> and so my wife was like, why would you say that? Why wouldn't, why wouldn't Daddy sing in the choir? And she said, well, if, if he was up there with Pastor Jay in the back row, they wouldn't be singing. They would just be talking the whole time. <laughs> so she's kind of got my number. We're, I'm... I'm a little bit of a talker. It may surprise you that Jay's a little bit of a talker too, but uh, I'm going to try to not be too long with it this morning. What I want to talk about is close and very near to my heart. It's something that um, I think all of us know, but I'm, I'm a pretty big believer that we need to be reminded a lot more than we need to be taught. And so what I want to do this morning is hopefully remind us all of a few things, the things that I've been reminded of preparing for this morning. So for my job, I travel a lot, and primarily by air. I'm on and off uh, several planes a week usually. And, uh, and so lately, as, uh, as you may have heard, they're, they're having some issues with a certain model of airplane. The 737 MAX by Boeing has been grounded because there were a couple of these planes that crashed. And they, the reason that they crashed is because there was a, a piece of software in the plane that was designed to correct a condition where the plane could nose up because of its design, so it would force the nose back down so the plane wouldn't go into a stall. And this, this, this piece of software was um, just dependent on a single sensor to tell it when to activate. And so what happened on these two flights is that the sensor malfunctioned and it sent the plane into a nosedive. And the pilots of the plane didn't even know that the system existed. The airlines that bought the planes didn't know the system even existed. And so they couldn't counteract it for 10 terrifying seconds. They're plummeting at a 40 degree angle towards the ground. Then the pilots had five seconds to try to, cre- to, to, try to correct it. They thought it was over. They didn't know why it happened in the first place. What they didn't know is still behind the scenes that five seconds later, there was going to be 10 more seconds of this. And there was five seconds of this, 10 seconds of this, until eventually both planes crashed. There was something extremely destructive happening under the surface that the pilot, the most important person on the plane, didn't even know was there. And I think that there are a lot of things... um, that we have in our lives that are just as destructive, that are under the surface. Sometimes we're not aware of them, sometimes we are, but we have to be aware of them. A lot of what we're going to talk about today has to do with self-awareness, being well confront, um, be, being, understanding our strengths and our weaknesses very well. Because if we don't know what's going on when it's going on, we can participate in some pretty destructive behavior. We can do some things that are bad for us, that are bad for others, that are bad for the name of God as Christians. And so we're going to get back to this idea of self-awareness in a little bit. But first, I'd like to um, open up God's word. Uh, If you're able, go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. This is out of Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse number 34. 
But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Amen. Take a seat. So this begs the question, why do we, mean, why do we need to talk about this kind of thing? Again, it's not about teaching, it's about reminding, I think. And what keeps us from loving God? And what keeps us with, from, from loving God with all of our heart, soul, and mind? I think the all is the hard part, right? It's, that, it's not that we don't love God, but it's that there's parts of our lives that don't, if we're honest, that, we're, that we don't turn over to God. And so here's what I want to kind of, um, where I kind of want to start, is with this idea that wherever God is not loved, people do not have an accurate picture of who he is. Because when God is seen for who he really is, he's irresistible. I'm going to say that again. Wherever God is not loved, the people do not have an accurate picture of who he is. Because when God is seen for who he really is, he's irresistible. The greatest commandment depends on us forming a right opinion about who God is. And a second like it, we must also form a right opinion about who others are. So I want to start by defining a few terms. I think it's important to be on the same page that when I use certain words, we all know what we're talking about. When I was a young Christian, I, I grew up in a Christian home. I had wonderful Christian parents, went to church regularly. But it wasn't until I was in high school that I started to kind of realize the why behind what, we were, what I had grown up doing. Why were we praying all the time? Why were we doing nice things for people? Why were we going to church? Why were we worshiping? And when I realized that, that's when I came to faith. And soon after that, I, I also realized that there were plenty of things in my own life that shouldn't be there if I was going to follow God. There were things that were hurting my walk with God at such an early stage. So I thought, I need to get into some kind of a Bible study or something because I need to know more about God. I need to talk about this with other people. And so I had a few friends, uh, two Daves and a Chad, actually. One friend Dave, the other friend Dave and Chad. And they had been asking me to come to a Bible study for a while. They told me it was an accountability group also. And I thought, that's good. I probably need that. Um, it's nice to be able to have people that know what's going on in your life, hold you accountable to do what you know is right, stay away from things that you know are harmful. And so I thought, okay, accountability, I can do that. Uh, there's a few things, though, that I'm probably not willing to talk to them about because if they knew those things, they wouldn't be inviting me. They wouldn't want to be my friends. They wouldn't even want to probably spend much time with me at all. And so I showed up at the, uh, at, at the Bible study. We met at a Starbucks. Um, I don't know why we met at a Starbucks. None of us drank coffee, but it was just the place to meet. And, and so I had this idea that there's a few things I'm not going to talk about, but let's just give this a try. I sit down, and the very first topic that comes up, pornography. I thought, whoa, all right, here we go. This is one of the things I wasn't going to talk about. But they, they want to talk about it. And the lie was that I thought, as with a lot of things, we think that our struggles are unique to us. 
We think that we're worse than everybody else. We think that other good people would never struggle with something like that. But one by one, every single week when we got together, we were around the circle and we said, how'd you do this week? 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 We were there to encourage and hold each other accountable because we realized that it was something that was destructive in our lives. It was something that was holding us back in the way that, one, in the way that we loved God and really in the way that we would love other people the rest of our lives. And so... In this group, we also decided that we needed to have a better idea of who God was. If when we come together, our goal is to know God better, then we need to figure out what are some resources, how can we learn to know God better. We were all pretty young Christians. And so one of the Daves brought this book, and it's called The Pleasures of God. And he was looking into it, and he said, I think this book, if we read this book together, it's going to help us get a, a, big, a bigger picture about who God is. And we'll learn to love him better. The subtitle of the book is Meditations on God's Delight in Being God. And so the rest of us agreed. We said, okay, we'll go get the book. It was before Amazon, so we had to actually go to a bookstore, order the books because they didn't have four copies. And then the week after, we all said, okay, we'll come back. We'll read the introduction. We'll come back next week, and we'll talk about it. Talk about what we read. So we showed up, talked kind of uh, really quickly about the introduction. Yeah, it was great. It was nice. Um, what, what stood out to you? I don't really remember anything too specific, but it was, a good, it was a good introduction. And so one of the other Daves, he said, hey, at the back of this book, there is a study guide. There's questions. So let's go through the questions together, and that'll kind of get our conversation going maybe. So we get to the introduction, how the book was born, question number one, and none of us could answer it. Not even a clue. It's question number two, same thing. Question number three, same thing. And we, we thought, okay, hold on a sec. We've got to pump the brakes. We need to probably reread this thing because there's good stuff here. We believe there's something good here for us, and we missed it. We really didn't see what it was. And so the first question was this. What was the key sentence in Henry Skugel's book, The Life of God and the Soul of Man, that triggered the origin of this book? And so I, I actually, after that, I went back to the bookstore. I got Henry Skugel's book, The Life of God and the Soul of Man, Uh, You probably haven't read it. Um, This guy died in 1657. It's kind of a hard read, but it's a great book. But I think this one is a lot more clear. Um, but, But the sentence out of that first book that inspired this next one was something that set me on a trajectory that changed my life. And this was the sentence. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be based on the object of its love. I'll say that again, because it's kind of a, there's a lot going on there. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. So then we get to question number two, and it says, what's the meaning of love in that sentence? We're like, whoa, we don't even know what love means. We've got we to start over. We've got to figure out, we've got to define this term. What, is, what does it mean to love? Because if we're going to say that someone's, what someone's soul is worth is based on what they love, and I believe that's true with all my heart. I think that in, in, in reading books like this and studying the Word of God, um, it's pretty clear that the object of Christ's love was his Father. Right? God loves himself. And because he loves himself, he, his soul has infinite value. His soul is excellent beyond anything else. And if, if, if we want our souls to be valuable, we should also love 
God. We should, we should love the most valuable thing in the world. And so we put together, and I'm not, a, I'm not a book writer. I don't usually write in the margins or anything. But I found this, this is actually the copy of the book that I had 20 years ago. And I actually wrote an answer to this question in this book. And essentially what my friends and I decided as far as a definition for love, and this is what I'm going to mean by love through the rest of this sermon, is that love is fully delighting in fully delighting the object of your love. If I love you, then when you're happy, I'm happy. And when you're fully delighted, I'm fully delighted. But we have to remember and realize that nobody is going to be truly fully delighted in anything short of God. There's other things that will bring happiness. There's other things that may bring smiles to our faces. But if we're to be fully delighted, and if the object of my love is to be fully delighted, then the most loving thing I can do is show them God. Help them to love God. Help them to know who God really is. Because when you see God for who he really is, he's irresistible. And so that set things in motion. It was the first time that I realized what it meant to love God with my mind. I never realized that Christianity could have an intellectual component to it, that it could be an intellectual pursuit. And as I pursued it, I would love God more. And it was, it was really cool. It, it's, it wasn't a, a new idea by any means. We were just discovering it for the first time. It wasn't a new thing to know that when you're more satisfied in God, that, that you'll be more fulfilled in general and, and completely. And like in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it says the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And Desiring God Ministries, the, the guys who wrote that book, at the end of every podcast that they produce and every book that they put out there, they always end with this phrase that God is most satisfied in us when we're most, or I'm sorry, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. So last week when Jay was talking, um, he mentioned that the value and significance of a well-formed question is that it brings focus. If you were here, you remember he mentioned the question that Jesus asks Peter when he says, who do you say that I am? That's a very important question, and the purpose was that it would bring focus to the situation. So I was sitting here listening, and I knew what I was going to talk about today, and so I, my mind immediately went to another question that Jesus asked Peter. And when I thought about the focus that it would bring, I thought, yeah, that's exactly what's happening here. The other question, in fact, Jesus asks Peter three times. He says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my lambs. And Jesus asks the second time, Peter, do you love me? Jesus says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then tend my sheep. And the third time he asks, Peter, do you love me? And Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. Jesus is talking about caring for and loving his church. He's talking about loving people. You can't separate out these ideas of love God and love people. They are not mutually exclusive. You can't love God without obeying what he says and loving people. And you can't love people because anything else that you try to give them that's not God is not going to fully delight them. So how do you do that? It's, it's not that easy. It's not just a simple, simple answer to a simple question. So I told you that it was exciting for me to learn to love God with my mind. But what I found after that is that it was heartbreaking to learn to love God with my heart. That 
what Psalm 51 says is that a broken and contrite heart is what we should have before God. I didn't have a broken heart. I had a hard heart. I had a heart that was, that was arrogant. I had a heart that didn't, really didn't care for people as much as I should have. I didn't see lost souls with the gravity that I should have seen lost souls. When we were preparing for this uh, series, Jay mentioned the analogy that he was going to use about if, if one of our kids were missing, if one of our kids were lost, we would, be, we, we would leave no stone unturned. We'd be everywhere just desperately looking for them. And the fact is, that the fact that people are lost, we should, we should see the similarity there. We should see that there are people that God said to love who have not encountered God for who he really is. There's people who are lost, and it should break our hearts, and it should lead us into action. And so, what does that look like? We all have different propensities towards different things. We're all good at different things. We all have, though, different weaknesses. And uh, a lot of people are surprised to hear that I have a pretty hard time in social situations. Uh, Something like this is fine. I'm up here. You guys are there. I can talk. I'm pretty comfortable. Um, you You want to see uncomfortable, look at me at a party or look at me even in the foyer before and after service. It's, it's not easy for me to start a conversation. It's not easy for me to just approach somebody, and, and, and I know that I should, and so I try to overcome it, and I try to find ways to discipline myself to say, listen, this needs to happen, and so you've got to get over this introversion. And so I consider myself to be kind of a disciplined introvert. Um, and what I didn't realize was when I, when I talked at the first service that I was basically inviting everybody to talk to me out there <laughs> by saying that. But, you know what, ironically, is it turns out that it's a pretty good conversation starter. It's like, you don't like talking to people? I don't either. It's a great, you know, and, and then there we go, we move forward. And, um, but that seriously happened like half a dozen times between the two services. And, and one, one lady was even honest enough to say, I was hoping you were going to say, oh yeah, introverts, you're off the hook. Like, that's just how God made you, and you're an introvert, you don't have to worry about it. But I'm sorry, I, I think that I see it as a weakness in myself. Um, that keeps good things from happening. It keeps really important things from happening. And so I think it's important to try to figure out ways to overcome that. I think it's also important to try to find ways to overcome anything that we recognize as a weakness in our lives. When we don't see people with the same eyes that God sees people, it doesn't lead us to love them the way that God loves them. And so, there is a, uh, there's a, Old African proverb, I think it is, that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. It's hard as an introvert to get people to go together. Because one, you don't want to go together. You want to go alone. You know, it, it, and, and so we have this reminder in my family, we have this over one of our fireplaces. It just says, better together. It's become kind of a mantra for our family. And we, t- we say it a lot. We talk about it a lot. And the idea is pretty self-explanatory is that things are better when you're together. The, the, the church is called a family and it's called a body. And when part of the body is missing or not functioning right, the body doesn't work right. And so if you want a, a fully functioning body that's effective, everyone needs to be involved. If there's people out there, we've got to bring them in. If there's people that are inactive, we've got to encourage them. 
Everybody has gifts, and if they're not using their gifts, that's a shame. But not only is it a shame just because they're missing out, but it's a shame because the work's not getting done as well as it could be getting done. And a lot of times the people who are doing it are frustrated because they're not really the right person to do it, but they've got a pulse, and so they've been asked to do something. That never happens here, I know, but other places. So we have this mantra, better together, and we keep it, you know, we keep it in, our, in our home just to kind of keep it at the forefront of everything that we do. Another thing that we do is that we defined um, some core values. We stated some core values. Um, I started personally, and then I kind of brought, the, brought it to my family, ended up bringing it into my ministry. I was a, a pastor for um, about a dozen years, actually. And this, by the way, kind of an aside, um, this introversion thing and not really caring deeply about people's souls as I should uh, doesn't work great when you're in full-time ministry. Okay? Just FYI. And, and so what happened was I started to realize that I was part of this big organization. And I, I, I worked at a few different churches over the years, and they grew, and they grew, and they grew, and we planted more churches, and they grew, and we planted more churches, and they grew. Soon we have thousands and thousands of people. Thousands of people were coming in. I was coming in contact with them on a regular basis. And I knew them about an inch deep. And we were there, we were kind of perpetuating the organization. Not, by the way, this is not a slam on any church. This is not a slam on a way of doing things. This was my experience. This is what I did. And I've, I've, it, it, this is part of the heartbreak that's helped me to love God and people with all of my heart and my soul. And so we have these stated core values. And uh, there's a guy named Pat Lencioni who is an organizational health uh, guru. He's a business consultant, and he helps companies state their core values. It's a way of kind of keeping centered, keep focused where it's supposed to be, understand who we are and why we're doing what we're doing. And, uh, and so some of the most successful companies uh, in the world have very concise uh, and central core values that they, that they state a lot. Um, these are not, mind you, um, aspirational values. This isn't something that we're hoping to do someday. This is like who we are now. For instance, um, Enron had a stated core value of integrity. So, obviously, there was something that wasn't quite jiving there. Not everybody got the memo on integrity. So, um, also, this is not just a permission to play value. There's things that we do that are foundational to everything. For our family, for me personally, that is the question, does it honor God? If that's a no, then it's a no. We're not going to do whatever it is that we're thinking about doing. So our core values, they're built on the foundation of our, of our permission to play values. And what they are are these three questions. First, we ask, will they feel loved? Will they feel safe? And will they have fun? The reason we put them as questions is because we kind of use it as a litmus test. It's kind of a quick way of just running something through our minds. If I'm about to tell a joke for instance. I know um, this probably never happens to you, but every once in a while I'll tell a joke that doesn't go over really well with everybody in the room. And sometimes people could even get offended by those things. And I used to be of the mindset that if they got offended, well, that's their problem. And that's a very arrogant way of looking at it. Wouldn't you agree? That, that why, would I, why would I possibly want to put something in between myself and somebody else because, again, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to paint an accurate picture of who God is because when God is seen for who he really is, he's irresistible. When I don't look like God, God gets a bad name and people have 
an easier time resisting him, right? And so we ask these questions. Will they feel loved? Will they feel safe? Will they have fun? We want people to know when they come to our home. We want people to know when I'm in a, when I'm in a board meeting with them. We want people to know when I'm interacting with them in whatever fashion. We want them to know that they're genuinely cared for, that they matter, and that, that we like the fact that we're together. Secondly, will they feel safe? Do they feel like they can be themselves? Do they feel like they have to pretend that there's somebody that they're not? for approval? Do they, feel like, do they feel like maybe they have to just kind of put on a mask because if they let you know who they really are, then you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't like them, you wouldn't love them. And so we ask, will, it, will they feel safe? And so we don't do things that would violate that. And then would we, will they have fun? It, it, it sounds maybe kind of like a contrite uh, addition on the end there, but it's really important. Um, I think it was Carly Fiorina, I was listening to a talk by her, and she said that nobody wants to follow a sourpuss. That if you want people to want to be around you, you've got to make it fun. You can't make it boring. You can't make it something that they dread. You, have to, you, you want them to leave wanting to do that again. None of these, remember, are ends in and of themselves. But if you, make it, if you don't make it fun... We like to have fun, right, Alexandra? And when we have friends over, we like them to have fun too. And when we entertain at our house, we want them to enjoy it. We want to find out what's their favorite meal. Let's make that for them. We want to know what's your favorite... Yeah, Jay. <laughs> uh, we, we, we like to find out what are the things that you like to talk about. What, can I, what do I need to know about them to make them feel as welcome as possible in our home? These are our core values. And this is not... Is it loving? Is it safe? Is it fun? We ask the question, will they feel loved? Because sometimes when somebody perceives something negative, they believe that to be the truth. Right? If somebody perceives something wrong, in their mind they think that that's what's real. And so we want to put it on other people to judge how we're doing at our core values. And we can tell pretty quickly when something goes sideways, when somebody has a bad experience or somebody gives us some negative feedback, whether that's personally or work-related or something. Then we go back to this and say, where did we miss it? Where do we miss the mark? And by asking these questions, it's helped us to address some of our weaknesses. Um, we couldn't do that if we weren't aware of what they were. So that's, uh, that's another component to it. A reason why we're here at this church is because we believe that this is a church that embodies those values. Even though I know it's never really been stated that way, my girls came to VBS last year for the first time, and they showed up, and they made a lot of friends. They had a great time. Everybody was here. It was like I, we, we dropped them off. It's like the whole church turned out to serve at this thing. And I was thinking, man, these people love my kids. They don't even know my kids. These, all these kids running around, they love these kids, and these kids feel loved. These kids feel safe. These kids are having a great time. They want to come back. And day after day after day, they're having the same experience again and again and again. And we came here on uh, Sunday morning about eight months ago, and it was really cool to show up. Nobody really knew my wife or myself, but everybody knew our daughters, and they're like, oh, you're Alexandra's dad, you're Caitlin's dad. Now, that was really cool. 
I knew that my kids were loved. And I knew that the motivation behind that, it wasn't just them being loved for the sake of having fun or you know, providing childcare for a week. Their motivation behind that was that these kids would have a better understanding of who God is. Because when God is seen for who he really is, he's irresistible. And that those kids' parents would have a better idea of who God really is. And so on and so forth. And so as we started attending, we saw that this wasn't just an anomaly. It wasn't just VBS. It was a lot of things here. A lot of the things that happen here happen because a lot of people are involved. And the idea that this church places a high value on everybody's involvement and a high value on relationship is how a lot of those values are fleshed out. That's how loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself is fleshed out. It's by recognizing the value of other people and loving those people. And so, like I mentioned earlier, I was part of a large ministry, and a lot of the time that we spent was trying to make things excellent. It's, an, it's a nice aspiration It sounds really good. The better things are, the more people want to come. The more people come, the more lives you can change. It's good. But what started to happen was perpetuating the organization became the focus. And we were definitely, we we cared about people. But what I started to realize was the difference between caring about people and caring for the person. There were a lot of individual persons that left never really feeling like they were loved They never saw God for who he really was. And it was because we were just not, our focus was in the wrong place. Again, not a slam on any church. This is a slam on me. This is what I was doing for a long time. And why my heart breaks when I think back of the hundreds and thousands of people who were right there. They were right in front of me. They were lost. And they're still lost. And so, I read uh, an article um, it was an interview in Relevant Magazine uh, interviewing uh, a former pastor named Rob Bell. You may be familiar with Rob Bell. Um, Rob Bell went a little sideways. He's not a pastor anymore. He, uh, I, I, it's not for me to know uh, or, to, or judge whether or not he's a Christian, but it doesn't seem like it. He has a lot of weird ideas that, that I think take people away from the true character of God. Nonetheless, he had a huge megachurch in the Midwest, like ten or 12,000 people, something massive. And he left that, and now he spends a lot of time actually with the Oprah Network. He does uh, TV shows and talks, and he, he's around a lot of people that not a lot of other people get to be near. And, uh, and so in this article, they were just kind of asking him about this progression, about going from being a megachurch pastor to being... Um, kind of a celebrity of sorts and, and uh, all the people that he gets to see and talk to on a regular basis. And this is the quote out of the article. He says, For many people, being a pastor means you're also running an organization. That's why so many pastors are so burned out and barely hanging on. They signed up for preaching and pastoring, but actually day in and day out, the preservation of the institution becomes paramount. Now, he says, instead of dealing with the responsibilities of running a megachurch, the expectations from fellow evangelicals, or the weight that comes from the pressure, there are fewer distractions. Maybe this is what being a pastor is supposed to feel like, he says. When you don't have that on your shoulders, and it's just you and the person, it's just you and them, and the space between you and whatever it is they want to talk about. So it's been very interesting to me, because I get endless moments where I'm doing the thing that people would say is pastory, but there's nothing in the way. 
This has been my experience. Um, I work as a fixed operations consultant in the auto industry. And what that means is that I get to travel to different parts of the country every week and meet new people, help them run their organizations. And I get to meet a lot of people. And I get to have a lot of conversations that you wouldn't expect a management consultant would be able to have. And it's because I... I try as much as possible to keep the focus that this person in front of me is a soul. This person in front of me is not just dollar signs. This person is not just check the box, finish the job, move on. This person is a potential lost soul that needs to feel loved, feel safe, and have fun. This person matters to God and therefore matters to me. And so what I get to do now feels a lot more like being a pastor than when I was doing men. And it's broken my heart to think back on everything that could have been. And it's motivated me to do differently moving forward. And that's, that's how a lot of learning happens, right? We have a lot of regret. We can't wallow in the regret, but it would be foolish of us not to learn from it. We all have those things we wish we would have done differently. And so, even though I'm not paid to be a pastor, my company, whether they know it or not, is paying me to be a pastor within their organization. I get to talk to people, and you, would, you wouldn't believe some of the things that people say. And they don't even know why they're telling me. They're like, I don't know what I'm telling you this, but my girlfriend was just diagnosed with cancer. I'm like, whoa, that's okay. It's a, it's a, it's a quick way to get snapped back into reality to say, this situation is a lot more... It's about a lot more than just doing my job. I have, I have other things to do while I'm here. And so that's been my experience. And I think that it lines up really well with what Jesus is telling us to do. The idea that together we create a better, more accurate picture of who God is is evident wherever you look around this place all the different perspectives we get to hear from. We get to hear from, in, in, in the last eight months since we've been here, I've probably heard from more different voices from the pulpit than I heard in my entire Christian life up to that point. It's so cool. And then reading the devotional guides and everything, there's just so many brilliant minds, so many different perspectives that shine a light on a different piece of God's character that we wouldn't see as completely if it weren't for the whole body functioning like that. That's not happening by accident. It's very intentional. And so it's, again, I'm here to remind us to keep doing that. That that needs to be at the front of everything that we do. Because people are lost and people need to know the Savior. So as I come to a close, where I want to finish is this. I want to quote Pastor Jay again from a few weeks ago. You are not a but. Remember when he said that? I don't think he's ever going to live it down. It's very memorable and very accurate. Um, It's great to see more people come into worship to learn about God, but our end goal is not just to get butts in seats. Our goal is to see lost people found. That's how we do it. We do it by showing them an accurate picture of who God is. Because when God is seen for who he really is, he's irresistible. Amen? Thank you so much.